If you're able, please stand for the reading of the word. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, As you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. So believe it or not, the text that Terry just read from Luke is actually a text for the Christmas season. If you're anything like me, you've poured so much energy and time into this time of year that by the time we've gotten to Christmas Eve and heard the story and the birth of Jesus and the shepherds and angels, and then we go through Christmas Day and the feasting and the gift giving, and we're just too tired to keep going and we're kind of ready to move on. But the Christian liturgical calendar tells a different story. In the Christian calendar, the season of Christmas only just begins on Christmas Eve. And then we have the 12 days of Christmas leading up to Epiphany, which is when the wise men came. I tend to drive my children crazy because I insist that we don't put the Christmas star on the tree until Christmas Eve. And I know it's a little silly because we do all the Christmas carols and we do all the decorating before that. But I just want one thing to remind us that during Advent, leading up to Christmas, we're still supposed to be waiting and longing, even though it's easy to skip ahead. 
So this Christmas season story of Jesus brought to the temple in Jerusalem takes place when Jesus is about 40 days old or about a month and a half. And this story fits really well with the themes that we've been looking at in Advent. Waiting, expectation, fulfillment of a long wait. So why do Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple? Well, this would have been a purification ritual required by law for Mary because she had given birth recently. And she was not able to touch any sacred object or visit the courtyard of the temple until she had undergone these purification rituals. And this would have affected her whole family, which is why they all come with her. Now, it's clear by the Levitical laws um, in the book of Leviticus that the sacrifice, because of the sacrifice that Mary and Joseph offered, the, off the offering of pigeons, that that indicates that they were a poor family. Um, pigeons were a sacrifice allowed for those who could not afford larger sacrificial animals. One author points out that having just traveled to Bethlehem for the census, this poor family, Joseph and Mary and their baby, and perhaps also going through Jerusalem and now making another such trek a little more than a month later, that the expenses of such a trip and the lost income could have created an economic hardship for them in addition to, as we might imagine, the rigors of travel for a new mother and her child. So this is not an easy set of journeys that they've had to make in the last many months, from Nazareth to Bethlehem and maybe through Jerusalem on the way and on the way back. We don't know exactly how they got there, but it was a lot of traveling, a lot of journeying. And so having finished these purification rituals, here two prophets, Simeon and Anna, enter the scene. Now we heard Simeon's prophecy quoted here, he praises God and tells of God fulfilling his promise that Simeon would see Jesus before he died and that he would see the light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He gives a prophecy about Jesus being destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. And then we have Anna, whose words aren't quoted here and who has a shorter narrative and in a way, her inclusion here seems like it doesn't really advance the plot any. She's just briefly mentioned, basically in what amounts to an aside. She doesn't have, at face value, anything to add to the prophecy. Simeon has already done that. But as a writer, I've been taught that you shouldn't include anything in a story that is only there for its own sake. In other words, if you're writing a story, um, what every, every bit that you include has to add something to the larger narrative. So you wouldn't mention a sword or a knife or a gun in, and describe it in great detail in one part of the story and then never mention it again. It would just not make sense. So Anna is mentioned here for a reason. She must be important. Well, this woman is obviously well known by temple goers because she's there day and night praying and fasting which is probably not literal, but means more that she is customarily or very often there. And she's well known for her devotion. <clears throat> and one of the things that I love about what Luke does is that he often gives us not only a man, but a woman as a witness to events. So we know that women in first century Israel were not allowed to serve or testify as witnesses in legal disputes. So to have a woman as a witness was itself a radical thing. 
But Luke doesn't do that just here. He does this over and over in his gospel. Um, Pastor Shively Smith notes that we have two sets of male and female witnesses in just the first few chapters of Luke, a man and a woman who witness to God's work in the world through special births. First, we have Zachariah and Mary and even Elizabeth in the earlier chapters of Luke who are serving as insider witnesses. They are major players in the story, both parents to very special babies. And then we have Simeon and Anna here in this passage, a man and a woman who provide outsider witnesses, outsider reports. They witness from the outside that Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the Messiah that people have been waiting for. So Luke has this lovely habit of including women whenever possible. And because she doesn't necessarily advance the plot in the way that we might think with a new prophecy, we know that Anna is important as a female witness, as a woman preaching and prophesying. And Luke does this often in his gospel. He shows men and women at the resurrection, and he, the Jesus of the gospel of Luke often uses men and women, even in the way he tells parables. But he does this for a certain reason. One scholar says that Judean women in the time of Jesus were unquestionably frequently oppressed. But in the use of pairing men and women throughout his gospel, Luke presents women in a new way as a group set free through the life and work of Christ and demonstrated to be equal participants in the community of Jesus' followers. So in the Gospel of Luke, men and women are equal partners in in the kingdom. So we could just move on from here and be done with that. But all of this prophesying about Jesus misses something that I want to focus on today. And that is tucked away in all of the prophecies about Jesus, another prophecy. Maybe you've noticed it. It was very fast. Simeon says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he says this, And a sword will pierce your own soul too. So tucked away in all of those prophecies about Jesus is the seemingly small but devastating prophecy to and about another woman. Mary. So if you've studied Greek mythologies or Shakespeare in school, you might have recognized that prophecies about a character in a story or a child just born are often not very happy. They often lead to tragedy. In Shakespeare's famous play, Macbeth, Macbeth is told a prophecy that he will be king. Now this is what is called a self-fulfilling prophecy, because the actions then that Macbeth takes as a result of hearing the prophecy sort of make it come true, but in a really violent and tragic way. Would, have those, would, have those actions, would, he, would he have taken those actions to be king if he hadn't heard the prophecies? And then some characters do the opposite and work to fight against a prophecy, trying to keep it from coming true. But usually their actions make it come true anyway, and it's sort of being locked into fate. Now, we don't see Mary's prophecy that way. It's not fate. It's not mythology. But I think it's interesting to think about prophecies and how they're often not light and cheery. This is true throughout the Bible. Prophecies can be devastating. You don't necessarily want to be on the receiving end of a prophecy. And this one to Mary is no different. Now, we don't know what Mary understood exactly in this prophecy, 
Some people have tried to say that they do know, and maybe you've seen on social media every Christmas season for the last few years, people's hilarious attempts to answer the questions posed in the song, Mary, Did You Know? The song asks all sorts of questions of Mary. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water, would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered would soon deliver you. Some people think, yes, actually, Mary did know a lot more than that song implies because of those prophecies in Luke, because of the prophecies in the song that she sings, the Magnificat. This year, one man posted jokingly, I don't know if you have that slide, Ron. <laughs> he said, to save everyone the trouble, I made a biblically correct list of everything mentioned in the song, Mary, did you know, that she knew and didn't know in order, you're welcome. No, yes, 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 no, no, no. Goes on. <laughs> now I dare you to look at the song and see if his, he's correct. I don't know. But clearly, we don't know exactly what Mary understood or knew about what would happen to Jesus or herself. The different gospel writers have Mary taking or show Mary taking different actions, maybe in some cases trying to help fulfill some of these prophecies, like insisting her son turn water into wine or seeking him out while he's preaching. But it seems that the prophecy of Simeon to her in this passage, to her specifically, would be clear enough for her to know that her life is going to be marked by pain. Now Mary knows discomfort from travel and poverty and insecurity and childbirth, but this kind of pain is going to be devastating. Her pain here is on another level. He says, a sword will pierce your soul. This sword is not a small butter knife. The word here is a very large, broad, two-edged sword. Now, I find it interesting that the next story in Luke is a story that would wrench any parent's heart. Joseph and Mary lose 12-year-old Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, Mary Schertz points out that that story of Jesus being lost for three days and the parents desperately looking for him is in one way meant to indicate that Jesus is going to have to prepare for ministry, that he's going to have to study the Torah and have, a, and have an apprenticeship. But this isn't what Mary is concerned about, at least primarily. She finds her son after three days of searching. She rebukes and scolds him as any mother would who has been anxiously combing the streets for her son for three days. But when they find him, Schertz points out that there are two different Greek words used to describe people's astonishment at Jesus. The people in the temple are astonished and amazed at this child prodigy. They're amazed at his wisdom and, and spiritual maturity. And the word here is as existimi. Mary and Joseph, on the other hand, are astonished, ekpleso, which carries the connotation of being overwhelmed. Mary and Joseph must have experienced a welter of emotions as they confronted their child prodigy in the temple as he conversed with scholars and teachers there. Now Jesus' response there as a 12-year-old child is to both challenge his mother and obey him, which is a good lesson to the children in the audience. <laughs> but what does it say of Mary? It says she kept all these things in her heart. Her soul is being torn, wrenched, bit by bit. So after this moment in Jerusalem, 
She watches her son grow in wisdom, knowing more with each year, each day, the truth of all the things she treasures in her heart. And when she watches her son die on a cross, her sword is truly pierced. A sword truly pierces her soul. What must it have cost her as she watched her son die in such a way? Now, Edward III reminds us that Mary, earlier in Luke, has sung that beautiful Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He says that the way Mary magnifies God is made clear in this passage we just read. She gives God the most praise when she shares in the sacrificial love of her son. Mary magnifies God with sacrificial love. Now, I've been reading a series of fiction books about a young man who lives in a kingdom called Buck, and he's the illegitimate son of one of the princes of the kingdom. Now, when his uncle, who is the king-in-waiting of Buck, is betrothed to a young princess from a neighboring mountain kingdom, there's a royal procession from Buck to visit the mountain kingdom and meet the princess. Now, of course, when the royals of Buck get there to the mountain kingdom, they're given the royal treatment and waited on hand and foot in this mountain kingdom. But they are baffled when they discover that the ones waiting on them in this mountain kingdom are actually members of the royal family. And the one in line for the throne is actually called the sacrifice, not because they're actually sacrificed, but because they see their role as servants of the kingdom and that they must be willing to give totally of themselves for the good of the kingdom. And it's strange to the people of Buck and all the surrounding kingdoms because it goes against what everyone understands about how royal family is to use power and wealth. So this makes me think of Mary and how she magnifies God with her sacrificial love. Mary, through her body, consents to God, ushering in a kingdom through her, a kingdom that is not like other kingdoms, a kingdom that baffles all the other kingdoms because it doesn't look like the powerful kingdoms they expect. It's a kingdom of refugees and poor, a kingdom of a young poor couple from a backwater town, a kingdom of the sick and suffering, a kingdom of the oppressed and marginalized, the widow and the orphan. It's a kingdom that, like in that fiction book, doesn't make sense. But that's who Mary is. The Council of Ephesus in 431 AD upheld a title for Mary, Theotokos, or God-bearer. Now this title should help us ponder what it means for a human woman to bear God. This divine Jesus was also the baby of Mary's womb, the one who had her DNA and her blood running through his veins. Edward Sree points out that this is what we are called to as Christians, to follow Mary, Mary's example, to be, to be God-bearers in the world. So what does it mean to bear God? We are called to bear God as Mary did, not just women who are able to physically carry children in their bodies. We, like Mary, are asked to take Jesus within ourselves and to be the vessel of God's goodness to the world. Bearing God is an appropriate metaphor, the metaphor of labor, childbirth. It shows us that being God's light in the world is like birth. It's painful. It's messy. It can be brutal. Bearing God in the world means we will probably suffer. 
Not that we should seek suffering, but that having the Spirit of God inside us, having Jesus' Spirit inside us, means that we will see the truth and beauty of God's goodness, and in contrast, the pain of the broken world will seem even more brutal, and it might break our hearts. It can be easy to think that following Jesus means we will have to have a sunny disposition and always be smiling and happy and feel joyful and content and calm. But Paul says in Romans that we know the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for redemption. Another childbirth metaphor. Bearing God, like Mary, is painful. We do it often with groans. But Paul also says that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. So just as with childbirth and labor, bearing God in the world can be painful. It can be messy and brutal. Just as a woman bearing a child wades through the pain of labor, knowing that she is laboring for something precious, her baby, bearing God in the world is also full of the joy of knowing that all this work is for something precious and beautiful, the kingdom of God coming to the world. I think it also means something comforting, that though we might suffer, God is with us, just as God was with Mary. Mary chose to allow God to work in her, and then she lived her life. She raised her family. She didn't, that we know of, go out and preach. She cooked and cleaned and did her daily tasks and work and helped her neighbors and loved her family. She was a normal human woman with a divine task. We are normal human people with a divine task to accept the task before us and not only bear God with us wherever we go, but to also see that God is already with us, just as God was with Mary in her body. God is with us when we suffer and struggle. And God is with us when we follow Mary's example of the sacrificial love of her son. Those tasks of daily radical love are not just asides in our life. They are the kingdom. You bear God in the world when you care for each other with meals and prayers and community, when you serve the people of God's choice, visit the sick, do Bible studies with those in detention centers, make infant care kits and quilts, teach children from underprivileged populations, welcome strangers into your home, when you bring God to your jobs and care for your children. It can be easy for us to forget that Jesus came into the world as a, to a poor, marginalized family living in occupied territory. Jesus knew what poverty was like, and he said that is where you would find God, suffering with the poor and the broken and the unlovely. After all, that's where God chose to come. That's who God chose to bear, the Savior of the world, a poor, marginalized, Middle Eastern girl from a backwater village. She raised the Savior of the world, who offers us all we need.